Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. And we're going to really pick up right from where we left off last week with really a kind of sequel talk as we finish off this big section that spans chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And it all kind of sits together. And so if you weren't around last week, uh, or uh, as one person admitted to me, you were here, but you weren't really listening because you were refreshing the cricket score quite a lot. Um, and no judgment, uh, a li- maybe a tiny bit, but mostly much respect. And if you want to know who that was, you can ask me at the end. I am willing to tell that secret. Um, but if for whatever reason uh, you weren't quite following along with the talk last week, then you might get pretty lost pretty quickly today if you're not careful, because really we're tying up all the loose ends from last week today. It's very much part two. So let me give you just quickly a bit of previously in Revelation so that you can just have a bit of a recap. Uh, Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are these intense, visual, symbolic chapters that are all centered around seven angels blowing seven trumpets. That's what this section is. If you open chapter 8 in your Bible, it will say above it, the seven trumpets. That's what this section is all about. And after, well, last week we saw the first six trumpets, okay? And after each one was blowed, there was an ever-increasingly horrifying, terrifying visual judgment scene uh, depicted. Uh, There was hail and fire and the sky falling in and the sun turning black and all these deliberately evocative images to show us the judgment of God as he sought to stand against those who were crushing his church. And it's easy in a school hall in Birmingham in the 21st century to judge these chapters as over-the-top, extreme, unnecessary, bit much, because we tend to come to the Bible for a little spiritual pick-me-up. But when you're in those countries, in those four corners that we've just prayed for, you don't come to the Bible for a spiritual pick-me-up. You come to find a God who is more intense and more extreme than the evil that is purging your family. And you come and go, is going to come good? So, does he hate evil? I really hope so. And so we find in these chapters that he is an extreme and intense lover of his church, and he vindicates them. And so, we're in this time of the six trumpets last week, and we're looking at all of that, and there's bloodshed and chaos and panic, and we, as we read those, are really looking forward to the seventh trumpet. If you were here, you'll remember that because we know in the Bible that the number seven in run of seven in the Bible is always the good one, the resolution one, the victory one. And so, oh, the six were a bit heavy, weren't they? But it's fine. We'll get to the seventh one because we yearn for the time of chaos and destruction to end. We yearn for that in Revelation. We yearn for that in the world today. We yearn for God to come and put this world right. And so, hallelujah, we flick over to chapter 10, relieved that we'll at last get to the time of the seventh trumpet. And here's the thing, it's absolutely nowhere to be seen, at least not yet. Chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 that we're going to be in today 
There's no sign of the seventh trumpet. It's like they've forgotten there was a seventh one. There's this interlude with a load of other random new stuff to look at. There's this pause. And it's almost like a literary demonstration of the phrase from earlier chapters where the suffering people of God were crying out, How long, O Lord? And the answer came back that they were to wait a little longer. I think what this interlude is trying to show us is that as we long for God to come and put the world right, we need to wait a little longer. And crucially, it's trying to show us and drown our imagination in imagery to teach us what we need to remember while we are waiting for Jesus to return. And so what I want to do is just very simply walk you through the very unsimple chapters of chapter 10 and 11. And we're going to read almost all of that through the course of the next 25 minutes or so. And then I want to pause seven times, because seven is the best number, and notice seven different things that we see, that John sees, that we are to remember while we wait. And then if we can hang on in there, we will get, hallelujah, to the seventh trumpet. We will get there. Let's start in chapter 10, verse 1. It will come up on the screen, uh, but feel free to open it in front of you uh, or unfurl your scroll or whatever you have as a Bible, but it will come up on the screen if you need it. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head, His face shone like the sun. His feet were pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then I saw, the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Here's the first thing that we're going to pause and spot, that we need to remember as we wait, that whatever you are going through, Jesus is greater. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is greater. We meet in those verses this cosmic figure who's described as another mighty angel. Now, I'm not going to die on a hill for this, and some people disagree, but my tentative belief, and backed up by a few commentators that I've read, is that this person described is a vision not of an angelic being, but of the risen Lord Jesus himself. The word angel actually only means messenger. And I think the description feels very unangel-like and very, very Jesus-like. 
What do you think? He's surrounded by clouds, a rainbow over his head. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like pillars of fire. His voice is like the roar of a lion. When he speaks, even thunder responds to his voice. And you see him with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Symbolism that he's in control and bigger than and greater than everything in the dark, chaotic depths of the sea and everything that happens on the tear-drenched blood-stained earth. And verse 5, you see him reach his hand towards heaven as if he can somehow connect heaven and earth. To me, that's Jesus. And if I met this character, I would be like, it's Jesus. Here's the thing. It might not be Jesus, and some clever people think it isn't. If it isn't Jesus, it's actually even better news. Because if that's an angel... And in Revelation, an angel's job is to cower in fearful worship before the Lamb of God, Jesus. If that's an angel, then imagine how great Jesus is. And so either way, we're absolutely quids in. And just look at this character. I'm going to call him Jesus from now on. Look how massive he is. To persecuted believers, to suffering people, what a vision of one who is bigger than all the big things going on in your life. He's more intense than all the intense things going on in your life. He's bigger and more intense than all the things going on in the first six trumpets. And of course, Jesus isn't actually that big, but it's symbolism. You're being shown he's greater. And in hardship of any kind, we need to know that Jesus is greater. He is greater than your pain, your grief, your mental health crisis, your miscarriage, your divorce, your abuse, your self-loathing, your cold-heartedness, your anger, your lust, your guilt. Whatever is biggest for you, he is bigger. And he can handle any size of thing you're carrying because he's bigger. And you can look to him and trust him while you wait. Let's keep reading. Verse 8 of chapter 10. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Pause there. Second thing that we're to see whilst we wait is that we must get God's bittersweet message into us and out from us. On here is given a scroll with God's word or God's message on it. And he's told to eat it. You didn't misread it. That's what it says. Internalize it. Let it into you. Let it become part of you, John. Have it live in you, John. And we're called to do the same. While we wait for the seventh trumpet, we need to not just read God's word, but eat God's word symbolically. 
Feed on it. Let it become ever-increasingly part of who we are. But this isn't just about taking God's message in during this period of time. We're also to get God's message out. And you see this in a couple of ways. So in verse 11, it says, Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's this outward, cosmic, global language that it's not just for John to internalize it and meditate on. It's about peoples and nations and kings. But there's more, which the original readers who are Hebrew thinkers, right? That's how their minds work. That's how they've been raised. They would have spotted immediately some obvious stuff that I at least just missed completely until I read a commentary. And that's that this scene is almost a carbon copy of an almost identical moment in the Old Testament, which is the of a fella called Ezekiel. And found in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, it's scary how similar these scenes are. It's very deliberate. Ezekiel is given a scroll. John is given a scroll. Ezekiel is unthinkably told to eat the scroll. So is John. Ezekiel is sent to speak for God. And so is John. And so there'd be no doubt in the first reader's minds that what we're being shown here is that God's instruction to the church while we wait is not only wait a little longer, but is also now therefore go. There's a commissioning whilst we wait for Jesus to come back. Yes, it's hold on to the gospel. It's also hold out the gospel. Yes, it's get the message in, but it's also get the message out. And notice before we fly on, this really odd language in verse 10, that it was sweet in my mouth, says John, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Biblical evidence that the best food is sweet and sour. Now, we love the first bit, don't we? We, we get that. God, John eats the Bible or the scroll or whatever it is, and it's sweet on his lips. And we have a song, don't we? Your name is like honey. On my lips. And that song would be ruined if the next line was, but when I swallow it, I get severe stomach cramps. Like, that would ruin the worship time because we don't have a category for this. But here, alongside a sweetness to God's word, there's a bitterness as we take it in and get it out. Here's what I think's going on. You see, even though the the judgments of God are right, even though God shaking the earth to try and draw people to repentance is right, and even though it's ultimately sweet, sweet, good news that God hates evil and loves his church and so eventually will act in judgment, that is also really hard news. It's sweet but it's bitter too. Even for God, I think it's bittersweet. You see, we're reading chapters where God comes to destroy the destroyers. But in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says of God, He does not want anyone to be destroyed, 
but wants everyone to repent. I think even God finds his sweet. He is committed to them because he loves his church. But he longs that people might come to Jesus for mercy. That's why he's given his son so that none might perish. And so I think it's okay, even essential, that we find these chapters bittersweet too. It's why when we speak of judgment or hell or people being lost now and for eternity, those are not to be spoken of with glee. Rather, with tears. These truths are sweet and bitter. Into chapter 11. Let's keep reading. What else is John shown? Verse 1. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshippers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Pause. The third thing we're meant to see is that God's people and the days of persecution are numbered. (coughs) Here John is given like a tape measure or what I like to think of as like a counting clicker if you're a door person letting people into an event to go around the temple of God which symbolizes the people of God, not a literal temple somewhere, and he's to count the people. It's showing us that God knows all that worship him. He knows all that are his. In the Roman Empire, in North Korea, in Yemen, in Birmingham, in your house, he knows those who are his. And whatever sufferings, and sorrows are coming your way or the way of those you love. He knows that you're there. He's not forgotten you. You are numbered. But the outer courtyard, did you notice that? Representing those who are on the outside or who are against the people of God, they are not counted. And these people are trampling the holy city Remember, it's symbolism. I think it's symbolic for the persecution that comes on the people of God. And it's showing us that God's people will therefore continue to be persecuted while they wait for Jesus. But all of this will happen for, obviously, (laughs) 42 months. More symbolism. More revelation symbolism. The two options are, I don't explain it, or I do, and both feel like unsatisfactory and a bit dull. I'm going to explain it. Just come with me. More revelation number stuff. 42 months is three and a half years. What is the number for wholeness and completion in Revelation? Seven. So what is three and a half? It's not a trick. Half, okay? Now, most commentators seem to say that that what this is saying, and this, this kind of motif is used throughout Revelation, it seems to be saying that it's a time, and it's a real time, and it's a long time, but don't worry, it's not the completeness of time. There will be an end. This time of persecution on God's people, this era of suffering for God's people, 
It's real and it's not nothing, but it's not forever. There's an expiry date on it. And if you're a persecuted believer, you sing out hallelujah at that point. That the days of persecution and chaos will end. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. We'll explain it in a second. And they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Pause. Here's the fourth thing that we're to see whilst we wait for Jesus. That God's people must witness with power. There's infinite debate around who these two witnesses are. But for me, my tentative view, backed up by great uh, British theologian Johnny Meller, uh, is that these two witnesses are speaking of the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church of Jesus. And so put together, it's just speaking of the people of God through the ages. You see, the first witness is described as being like some olive trees, just like, I know you know this, but just like God's Old Testament people are in Zechariah chapter 4. And the second witness is pictured as two lampstands, just like the church is in Revelation 1 to 3. And so for me, these two witnesses are just symbolic of the whole people of God through the ages. And they speak for God throughout that period of 42 months or 1,260 days. The same period that the persecution is happening, the witnesses are witnessing. It's saying that as persecution rages, we must keep witnessing. Whatever happens, we must keep speaking of the hope of salvation in Jesus. In pandemics and plagues and economic crises, we must keep witnessing, even when it's tough. And do you see the power that their message comes with? It's symbolic. Speak some of the very same things that God would it's now when these witnesses speak. It's like these witnesses of God need only open their mouths. Power is attached to their message. And if that's the case, while we wait for Jesus, whatever we're facing, we must, Church Central South, keep speaking Jesus with confidence because God-given power is attached to the gospel. It's the power of salvation for all who believe. Stick with me. We'll get to the seventh trumpet. But what else? Verse 7. When they complete their testimony, the beast, future talks will unveil that fella, that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, 
all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Pause. Fifth thing we need to see, God's church will often look defeated. It's the starkest, most shame-drenched picture that you could possibly write to be killed and be buried and to be gloated over and have people celebrate your death. And that's a picture used to describe what was happening then to the people of God and has continued to happen in different places even to this day. I think the mentions of Jerusalem and Sodom and Egypt are trying to show us that this can happen in all sorts of places at all sorts of different times. But God's church will often look defeated. But check this next bit out. And if you're nervous, I'm on my last page. It's all in very small print, though. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. And they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Pause. Sixth thing we need to see, that God will resurrect his church. As the people of God suffer, and maybe are even seemingly destroyed, after three and a half days, remember, after a, a real but, but not eternal amount of time, not a complete amount of time, it's long and it's hard, but it's not seven, it's three and a half. After three and a half days, God breathes life. He revives. He restores his people. And the enemies of God don't know what to do. And the church cannot be stopped. And Jesus will build his church. And it's ultimately true on the last day, as all who have died in Jesus will be resurrected and will rise again. But it's also true in cycles throughout church history. Very quickly, If you've never read the story of the church in China, it will do you good to see that these verses come true. Because once the gospel was introduced to China, there were multiple attempts to silence it and purge it to close to zero. And at one point, it looked like it was completely wiped out. But God breathes life. Because by 2030, China is on course to have more followers than any other nation on earth. Hallelujah. And you know what book is not allowed to be read in the state-sanctioned churches in China? The book of Revelation. I bet they banned it. What else? Verse 13. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Pause. Seventh and final thing we need to see before the seventh trumpet, before Jesus comes in victory, is that some will turn to God. Do you remember last week, if you were here, we saw that despite the shakings and plagues and wars and pleas from God to repent, people weren't turning to him. 
But now that you see the witnessing church added in alongside the judgments of God that shake the earth, now, verse 13, many give glory to the God of heaven. Now that we are in the story, witnessing despite sufferings and hardship, now we are in the story speaking for Jesus, that unlocks something and many do come and give glory to the God of heaven. And that's why we keep witnessing in pandemics, in plagues, in cost of living crises, whatever's happening, we keep speaking because that combination opens the way for people to turn to him. There you go. Seven things we need to remember in the time of waiting for the seventh trumpet. And then, after waiting a little longer, at last, and in the end, the moment that we yearn for, comes. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever, ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God, fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead And reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people, and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. The trumpet is blown. Enough is enough. God comes. He comes to vindicate his people. He comes to destroy destruction. And in my mind, and in all the stories that I read, if our future hope, I'm aware that some disagree with that and interpret it differently. But for me, it's a picture of the final judgment of God. At last, the time for waiting is over. And what does he do when he comes? Verse 15, he reclaims the world. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he'll reign forever and ever. Verse 16, war gives way to worship. The elders fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped. Verse 18, he decisively responds to evil. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time for your wrath has come. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction. It's time to destroy destruction. And verse 18, he vindicates his people. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, your holy people, all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. Hallelujah. We have to wait a little longer. In the sufferings and sorrows, 
that fill our life, we have to wait a little longer. But one day the seventh trumpet will sound. And on that day, however much pain or panic or fear or chaos or death our lives have seen, however little feel, if we've continued to fear the name of Jesus, then we will be with God forever. But for now, we have to wait a little longer.